welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm your host, Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News, joined by the archetype of the retro grouch, Coach Trevor Connor. So, you think you know bicycles. Well, think again. Today, we're sitting down with a legend of the cycling industry to talk about a variety of factors in frame design that most cyclists have never even heard of. Yet these design elements, things like fork offset, trail, head tube angle, have a bigger impact on a bike's performance and ride quality than frame material or any of the things we focus on when checking out what our friends are riding. Our guest today is longtime VeloNews contributor, Leonard Zinn, author of the definitive books on bicycle maintenance, Zinn in the Art of Road Bike Maintenance, Zinn in the Art of Mountain Bike Maintenance, among other titles. Zinn has spent the past 37 years building custom bikes and studying the physics of bicycle design. Incidentally, it all started with his college thesis on building an unrideable bike. We'll hear more about that in a moment. But in today's program, we'll delve into the following things. The concepts of fork rake, head tube angle, and trail, among others, and why each is a crucial element of bike design. How each of these factors acts together to make the bike more or less stable, and why greater stability may not be what you're looking for. The effects of wheel flop and how it impacts your ability to corner, including an explanation of counter steering and why you'd want to use it. How understanding rake, trail, and flop can have a significant impact on your performance, as well as how you can put it to good use in selecting the right bike for you. The evolution of bike design and how it has been influenced by both fashion and performance. And finally, some guidelines on selecting your next bike and how to get the ride experience you want. So, have you brushed up on your physics? Are you prepared to learn how a bicycle really works? Let's make you fast. Well, we're sitting down with the legend himself, Leonard Zinn, longtime contributor to Vela News, staff member at one point, maybe, and... I've actually never had a full-time permanent job in my entire life. I mean, owning a business, building yeah, bikes, is kind of a, a, a full-time job. I've never but... seen it as sort of a real job. It's like <laughs> when Bruce Springsteen says, you know, I, I, I worked I, on a roofing crew, uh, until I made enough money to buy my first guitar, and then I quit, and that was the last time I ever had real work in my life. You kind of feel that way. Yeah. You are a rock star, <laughs> after all. So um, to start out here, I'm looking at our agenda, and I'll admit as the, the resident retro grouch, I'm seeing a whole bunch of terms that I'm pretty unfamiliar with, and I know we're going to do a pretty deep dive into each of these, but maybe we can start out with just a, a 30-second definition of each. So we have fork trail, head angle, fork rake, and wheel flop. So fork rake, and also be expressed as fork offset, is the perpendicular offset of the position of the front hub, the center of the front hub, relative to the steering axis. So forks in the past always were curved, and, the, and, and this rake was like 
the curve of a rake. It was and, obvious too. And it was obvious that if it had a lot of bend, that was a lot of fork rake. Now forks, the fork legs tend to be straight, but they're angled at the fork crown or like a, like a suspension fork. Often the crown will be, will be, uh, angled forward each. It won't be a flat crown. It'll, it'll be sort of a V shape angle forward and then you'll have these straight legs and then you'll also often have the dropouts sticking out projecting forward from the from those so all those things combined give you the the offset of the center of the front hub relative to the to the steering axis okay then head angle is the angle of the of the steering axis relative to horizontal so the head tube of the bike if you were to put a put a protractor on it and and compare it with the ground, there's probably some people out there that have no idea what a protractor oh, okay. is. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, if you if you, you could use a level, perhaps. Yes. Okay. Well, if you if you take a ruler along the head angle of the bike, and you and you if you take the ruler all the way down to the ground, and then you measure the angle between the ground and that ruler, so it's always the acute angle you're interested in. I mean, obviously. Say, say you've got a 70 degree angle, head angle. Well, then the complement of that is also the angle of that, of that steering axis relative to the ground is 110 degrees. So you're not, you don't ever express the head angle as 110 degrees. You'd express it as, as the 70 degrees, as the, as the acute angle. So then the fork trail is the distance between the steering axis intersect with the ground and the tire contact patch on the ground. So if you follow this, the line of the steering axis all the way out to where it touches the ground and you mark that point and then you measure back to the center of where the tire is touching the ground, that distance is trail or fork trail. And it's related to not only the head angle, you can see is as we change that head angle we spoke about, how that changes where the steering axis intersects the ground. And you can see that as you decrease the head angle, the, 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 steer, the axis, the intersection point moves further forward, so that would increase the fork trail and vice versa. And also you can see the fork offset as the fork, fork offset gets greater, then that moves the contact patch of the tire forward relative to the um, steering axis intersect. And so that decreases the fork trail. But that brings us to a, a good point. Your previous sort of job working for somebody else was with Tom Ritchie. Yes. 30, how many years ago was that? Uh, 1981 into 82, so... 36, 37 years ago. And that's where we want to go to because that explains a lot of your experience with frame design. That's where you sort of learned the craft. That's where I learned the craft about building bikes. But frame design was actually something that I studied quite a bit before that because my degree is in physics and I did my senior seminar on the stability of a bicycle. And I did a couple of things to try and figure that out. One was... That seems so simple, but it's not. No. Like, <laughs> that's what we're going to talk yeah, about. Yeah, like physicists have argued for years about what makes a bicycle stay upright. Is it that it's a very skinny steamroller, or it's the gyroscopic effect of the wheels, or 
you know, there's been a whole bunch of theories. And at the time, I learned Fortran in order to do this computer model of of bicycle design. I don't think I've used Fortran really since. I've never even heard of Fortran. Fortran it's a computer it's language from, from back in the day. And I <clears throat> tried to build an unrideable bicycle mm. out of an old bikes from from uh, disabled American veterans in Colorado Springs. Building guess, an unrideable bicycle. Now that sounds like a fun senior project. Yes, yes. <laughs> it was. And so, and from that, you can then learn what it is that makes a bicycle stable, what it makes it stand up because it's not that easy you've after i discovered after a while that you know you as a rider have so much ability to keep the bike upright Mm -hmm. that you end up having to take the bike out of the out of the equation and i just piled it up with weights Mm -hmm. and pushed it across the parking lot is what i ended up ended up doing in order to to test these things but other than if you set something up in the bike so it works the absolute opposite of how, like, I don't know if you've ever seen that video of the guy where he tur- somehow turns the steering system around. Right. So I heard about you, this. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just crazy. So you, you turn the handlebar one way and the wheel goes the opposite way of what you, and, and, and people are like, oh, that'd be no problem, you know, and good riders try it and they're just constantly crashing. And then, and then he goes, takes it to the train station in Amsterdam and has people come, hey, you want to ride this bike? I bet you can't ride this bike. And they're, oh, of course I can ride the bike. And up. <laughs> right. And, and then when he then, he's now finally learned how to ride this thing. And then he gets on a normal bike and then he can't, can't stay, stay upright on the normal bike. Yes. So, yes. so there's, the human has a whole lot to do with it. But in any case, what I really discovered was first of all how incredibly stable uh harley hog is that that looks to me like a crazy contraption you know with this super super long long fork that sticks way 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 out in front but those guys are able to just sit there with no hands and ride that thing at really high speeds it's just totally unmaneuverable Mm -hmm. but and so that's that's the thing that that you have to balance when you're designing a bike is you you don't want it to be too stable to be steered, which is kind of what a Harley Hog is. Right. It's, and you you from a performance perspective on a bicycle, you wouldn't want to do that because you just can't unless you're riding it across the country right. straight yeah. <laughs> straight road the yeah. whole way. Yeah. It's not what you want. So you you push the bike toward instability when you do this. But the the way I built the bike that that would not stay upright like one way to make a bike that is incredibly stable where you just pile a bunch of weight on it and you push it across a parking lot and it's so stable that you can keep running along and banging it banging the handlebars or banging the seat from the side as you run along and it just keeps straightening up straightening Mm. up and straightening up and until it finally runs out of momentum and then just kind of real lazily swings back and forth and back and forth and then and what's different about that that bike all i did was took one of these bikes from disabled american veterans and turned the fork around backwards so i have negative fork rake and uh obviously turned the handlebar around then the other way and what the what that does giving it negative fork rake is it makes the fork trail very big. So fork trail is this distance measured on the road, measured on the surface that the bike is sitting on, 
and it's the distance between where the steering axis, so you draw a line through the, through the center of the head tube, through where the fork goes through the headset bearings, and you just continue that until it hits the ground. That's the intersection of the steering axis with the ground, and then there's the contact point of the tire with the ground, and the distance between those is the fork trail, or trail. And the bigger that is, the more stable the bike is. And so going back to that Harley analogy, going back to the Harley analogy, what you have is, is this super, super shallow head angle. And, and maybe you've got a little bit of fork rake to it, but it's almost irrelevant because the, the, the head angle is so low. And, and yeah, if you project that line straight down that fork way, way out, way out in front and the road way out in front of the bike, and then measure from there back to the contact patch of that front wheel, it's, it's a long distance. And that, that word trail is actually a very good word to use for this because even though the bicycle looks like the front wheel is ahead of it, on the front end of it, it's actually trailing the bicycle. And the analogy is if you go to a grocery store and you pull a grocery cart out of the rack and when you pull it back, the little casters on the front flip around so that they're now, they, they, those have little forks on them, a mm-hmm. little bit of fork rake, little bend to them or curve to them. And when you pull back on the, on the cart, the wheels flip around so that they're trailing the cart and you pull it back. And then as soon as you push it forward, they flip around the other way. So they're now, again, they're in each case, they're trailing the steering axis. They're, the steering axis is vertical on the, on the shopping cart. It's just a, you know, a caster that sticks straight up into these holes in the, in the bottom of the shopping cart and the wheels will always flip around backwards to trail that that steering axis and if you get one every now and then you get one that's a really crazy behaving cart and it's because uh generally the shaft that 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 the caster turns on is is like frozen so it, it can't spin around freely and then the wheels are or one wheel is facing forward when it should have flipped around back and the thing is just, it's a wobbly thing rolling around the grocery store. I was going to say, even though you've explained that, I bet there's some people out there that are like, there's no way, the, the wheel is up front. How is it possible that it's trailing the bike? So another another thing, way to think about this is when you go to push your bike along, you can push a bike along by grabbing the saddle and just everybody sort of had, had that experience. You can walk along and you can maneuver it through a crowd and everything mm-hmm. holding onto the saddle, tipping it side to side, right. and you know how right. it's going to behave. If you try and do the other way around, where the rear wheel is visually trailing the front wheel, and you turn it around and you push it, you push it from the saddle with the rear wheel first, it'll you can't control it. The front wheel is doing all sorts of crazy stuff because it is not actually trailing the bike at that point. So the, the way, for instance, to make the unrideable bike, the bike that where you'd pile it up with weight so that it, it would just fall over almost immediately, is to make it where the front wheel is literally not trailing the bike, where you have, where you have negative fork trail. And so that that means that, that the steering axis intersects the road behind the contact patch of the tire. And so the way to... You're essentially doing what you're just describing with a, a grocery cart, where yes. you're setting it up so that the wheel won't turn around, and now you're you're, exactly. you're pushing that wheel under the okay. Right. Exactly. So the way to do that, like the way to do it with a with a 
old bike from the disabled American veterans is to take pieces of steel plate and drill some holes in them and make the fork rake super, super long. So just bolt those to the fork and then stick those straight out ahead and, and bolt those to the wheel so that the, the, the fork has this incredible amount of fork rake. Another word for fork rake is fork offset. So that's the, that's the distance that the front hub is forward of the axis of the fork. And so that's a perpendicular distance forward from the steering axis of the of the front hub. So, so it's if you essentially make, the the curve in the fork is that yeah. So but now forks of course are straight, and people think oh that means it doesn't have any rake. No, it means that the rake is built in at the crown. It's the the legs are angled forward instead of being curved forward. Okay. So anyway, if you have this fork with this huge amount of fork rake, so I think I had mine. I had like two feet of fork rake fork offset to it, and then you pile it up with bricks. And you push it, it just it just falls over immediately. You can't you can't just can't get it to to get going at all. It's like trying to push your back bike backwards, mm-hmm. and it may seem counterintuitive because people often think of, especially these are in the old days more. The, the touring bikes had a lot of curve to the fork, a lot sure. of bend to the fork, and, yep. and then you'd compare that with a with a uh, criterium bike and it looked like it was you know not much fork rake and pretty pretty straight fork and especially a track bike the track bike is deceptive because a track bike the track basically makes it so that you're drive riding straight the whole time so a track bike you actually want to be extremely stable but that's not the case with a criterium bike criterium bike you want to be quite maneuverable so you want it to to you want to push that bike much more toward the instability side. Mm-hmm. Also, the wheel diameter plays a role. That that if you have all the same, this same geometry, if you have the same amount of fork offset and the same head angle, but you have a very small wheel, the steering axis line won't be able to diverge very much. So the tire contact patch will be quite a bit closer to the to the steering axis intersect. The smaller the wheel is, and then. Obviously, the, the bigger it is. So, so those also need to be taken into account when you're looking at, for instance, a little kid's bike with 12-inch wheels versus an adult bike with a like a 29er. You can't expect to have similar handling characteristics with the same fork, head angle and fork rake on those two bikes because the, the wheel diameter plays such a huge role. Now, so a question I was going to ask you uh, about bikes and... and... I'm going to say I'm coming at this from the position of uh, I'm the guy who picks his bike by going into the, the bike shop and basically saying what's cheap and nobody will be caught dead on and I'll buy it. Uh, so I don't ever consider these things, which I really should. And I've certainly gotten on bikes before. And even though I'm always a guy who says a frame is a frame, I get on some bikes and I go, I can't get this damn thing around a corner. Mm-hmm. So it seems like in different situations, you want more or less fork rake. So I guess what would be the situations where you'd want more and what would be the situations you'd want less? And more importantly, is that something that you can accomplish just by replacing the fork or is that in the whole frame design? Correct me if if I'm wrong, but it's the interplay of all of these things that makes the complete package and makes a bike. If it's a bike that's built for criteriums, it's one, not just one of those things that makes it great at that at what it's intended for and and likewise with the touring bike on the other end of the spectrum yeah that's that's correct so 
earlier I was just talking about changing the fork rake because I had an existing bike with an existing head angle and existing size wheel. But the fork trail, which is the thing that you're really interested in, this trail distance, that the greater that is, the more stability you have, that is a function of the, the diameter of the wheel, the head angle, and the fork offset or fork rake. So it's everything. So, so it's all of those combined. So, so yes, if you have an existing bike and you, and you want to change its handling characteristics, you can't realistically change the wheel diameter. I guess now with disc brakes, you sort of can, but, but you generally can't change the wheel diameter and you can't change the head angle. The one thing you can do is change the fork. So when earlier I mentioned, if you looked at a Criterion bike compared to an old school touring bike and you'd say, oh, well, you know, that, that's got a much straighter fork. And, and, and you know that a Criterion bike is more maneuverable than the touring bike. Well, the Criterion bike also has a much steeper head angle. And that, that's what then you can imagine as the head angle gets steeper, that brings that intersection point of the steering axis with the ground, it brings it back further. Of course, it also brings the wheel back as well, but then that negates having less fork rake if you if you steepen up the head angle a lot and the touring bike would sort of be the opposite yes maybe it has a lot of fork rake but it's also got a really shallow head angle so those two things kind of counteract each other and you and you can still have a fair amount of fork fork trail with it now people also have had the experience i think of of having a bike that they lean it over they're just walking along with these bikes standing still and you lean it over and the wheel flops very strongly out of the plane of the bicycle, flops inward. And one might assume that, boy, that just flops a lot. That would be unstable. I think that would be somebody might right. realistically think that. It's quite the opposite. You can define that, that wheel flop. And that wheel flop is, the, the wheel wants to flop more because any object is trying to reduce its potential energy at any given time. So, so when you lean the bike over, if the bike can drop its potential energy more, drop its center of gravity more, it will do so. And, and, and so if the geometry is such that the front, that the front hub can drop down more by flipping, by flopping inward more, then it will do that. And the way a, a, a super stable bike achieves its stability is because every time the bike leans over, the wheel flops inward super strongly to get the contact patches, the two contact patches, the front and rear tire, to get them under the rider really quickly. So more wheel flop actually means more stability. And those guys with those Harley hogs, you can bet that those guys are going to have some massive kind of a um, kickstand set up on that bike right. because you know if you if you let it lean over a little bit that wheel's just going to flop over the thing's going to want to fall right. fall right over and you know that that's a very stable bike so i'm imagining so, uh, so an example of this or more the opposite i remember i i flew to a race and my team was going out for a, a spin the first day there and i got there a little later than them, so i had to put my bike together really really fast uh, and was stressed. And so when I was putting the, the handlebars on, I just cranked them down way too much and, and quickly tightened up the bolts, got on the bike and went out on the road. And I cranked it down so much, the handlebars wouldn't turn very easily at all. They were just kind of stuck in a, a straight position. The headset bearings were bound up. Yeah, I mean, probably yeah. destroyed my bearings yeah. doing it. And I noticed 
I mean, I almost crashed a few times on those drives because if I tried to lean, you have that expectation that the, the wheel's going to turn. And because I was cranked down, the wheel was being forced to stay straight. Exactly. And then instead of turning, the bike was just falling to the side and I had yes. to quickly correct. So that's so you're saying this wheel flop is kind of the opposite of that. Yeah, yeah. So the, the wheel flop is what allows you, for instance, when you ride your bike with no hands and you, especially as you get to slower and slower speeds and you lean a little bit and the, the wheel turns into the direction of you, of your lean to get the wheel wheels back underneath you. And it, it wants to, that's the position of stability is to have the wheel contact patches underneath the mass of the rider. And then as when you're making a big arcing turn, then the more stable the bike, the more it's going to turn into the turn as you lean it over and 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 have that have that mass underneath i mean have the the contact patches underneath the mass so you threw out a lot of technical terms but it sounds like these factors all make a huge difference on the ride experience the you know the handling of the bike i mean these are really important things to be considering that probably a lot of us don't even know about yes I, that is certainly the case. <laughs> yeah, and I think um, it's complex when you talk about all of these things because there it's a relationship between all of them. If you change one, it can change another thing, and it can change a bike's riding characteristics completely. You could get it completely wrong if one of these things was not dialed in relative to the others. Is that yes, that's that's correct. And there is also another input, and that's the position of the rider's weight relative to the wheels. So you can imagine that the same bike would handle quite a bit differently if the, say the seat is pushed way, way, way back and the stem is shortened way, way up, even though the person's reach from the saddle to the bar might be the same. He's got a lot less weight on the front wheel, a lot more on the rear wheel in that situation than if the, the reverse were the, were the case. The seat were pushed way, way forward and a super, super long stem. Those will also play a role, and 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 a person as they get more more used to different bikes and 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 what what their preferences are, they'll often also tend to gravitate toward one way or the other. You see, like the, the current fashion with mountain bikes these days is is incredibly shallow head angles and super super short stems. Slacker head tubes, they call Sla- it. Yeah, slacker head tube. The fork rate doesn't tend to change that much. The fork offset, because these are basically the suspension fork. There's not a whole lot of variation that you see in, mm-hmm. in the amount of fork offset. But this head angle changes a lot. And then, and then the handlebars are getting longer and longer and longer. And you have much more leverage with these longer and longer handlebars. And then decreasing the stem length actually increases that leverage because it's not, mm-hmm. you know, less of a de- decrease in in the, the, the same movement of one hand is going to rotate it more the shorter the the stem is than if it's if you got a longer stem and so that's what this makes bike, for makes for more nimble I mean it, it reacts yeah, fa- it much makes, faster exactly it makes the bike more nimble when you when you've got an extremely stable bike because you made this super super shallow head angle right. which which gave it a whole ton of fork trail and then by increasing this leverage that the rider has on the front wheel, then he then uh, he can overcome that great stability. How does an understanding of some of the technical stuff in this episode, fork rake, trail, head tube angle, 
How does that help a rider either become faster, more skilled, or even on the sort of on the commercial side of things, avoid being duped in a sense by some marketing claims by a company out there? So three, three distinct questions, I guess, in one right there. Well, for sure. I think if, if you think of a top motorcycle riders, for instance, top moto, motocross like riders, moto, motocross, not, not motocross, MotoGP. MotoGP riders on, on the road, you can bet that those guys really understand the handling of the bike, of, of what the bike is going to do, because it's a much heavier thing than, than a bicycle that we pedal. And if they're not working with the bike and they're making these turns at, you know, I don't know, but it's ridiculous speeds, 150 miles an hour or something, I don't know. But but they're turning at crazy speeds and they're getting it leaned way, way, way over. Well, so this this function of wheel flop where you where the where you lean the bike and the wheel flops into that direction of the lean quite a bit further than the wheel turns into the uh, into the turn that is intended that's the natural stability of the bike and what that does for instance if you're pushing pushing a bike along with just a pile of bricks on it and and you bang on the handlebar or something so that it leans or bang on the saddle so it leans what it will do is the wheel will turn quickly into the direction of the lean and it will get the the wheels back underneath the weight and then it'll straighten up correct itself yeah so but that's the opposite of holding a deep lean like a moto gp rider wants that guy wants to be in that lean the bike stability wants to straighten it up Mm -hmm. the bike stability if he just let the bike do it on its own he leans it and the bike would get the wheel back underneath him and it would straighten back up and he would go straight across the field if he wants to if he wants to do that turn at that kind of speed, he has to hold it down into the into that lean. So it's an intentional instability yeah. on the designer's exactly. Uh, yeah, but this so, is this is something I'm, I'm constantly telling new athletes when I'm teaching them how to corner. It's because it's such a strange concept that when you're going through a turn, um, a well-designed bike actually wants to go back upright and wants yes. to go straight and actually you have to force the bike over yes you're fighting to push the bike down not to keep it from crashing that's right so so if you look at the moto gp rider you'll see the guy leaned way over but if you look at the at him his inside arm will be much straighter than his outside arm and what that does is that he's trying to it's called counter steering he's trying to steer the opposite direction of what the what the bike wants to do. The bike wants to flop that that wheel into the turn, and he wants to push it away from the turn. So he's trying to push the the contact patch of the front tire out from underneath him. And then, as long as he does that, then the centripetal force of of him going into the turn. The only way to 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 maintain that arc is for the the lean to get deeper and deeper. And so the more he pushes the wheel out from underneath him by pushing his inside arm forward and pulling in with his outside arm, turning essentially turning the front wheel the opposite direction of, of the turn that he's going into, the more he does that, the more it forces the bike into a lean. And so it is extremely useful to, for the rider to understand that. I think if you ask most riders, and in fact, you know, if you ask most riders, 
how do you get your bike to lean into a turn? Well, you steer into the turn. And it's not true. You steer away <laughs> from the turn. All the time. Don't, they're and, always like, should you turn the handlebars? I'm like, no, no, don't think about turning the handlebars. Yeah. But once you understand this, then you can think about turning the handlebars, except turning it the opposite so direction right, of right. what you think. Not aggressively. Yeah. It's a, these, are, get, these, these are subtle, subtle movements that we're subtle, talking about. These are subtle movements. You can be sure that that Fabian Cancellara and, and, and um, Peter Sagan, when they avoided that crash in the end of Milan-San Remo, when, when Gaviria came down a couple of years right. ago, they're going at high speed. Those guys did not do a gentle, sure. subtle movement. They countersteered strongly and heavily and quickly. Mm-hmm. And that's how they got around. And a lot of other people didn't. They mm-hmm. crashed into them because they didn't have those kind of handling skills. And those guys do understand even though they might be able not be able to verbalize it, they do understand how how the bike handles. And I, I think you know Peter Sagan is a perfect example. He knows exactly where his bike is and what it what it needs to do at any point. Understanding the geometry certainly helps you improve faster. At some point, it becomes innate. You know, you're you're acting on instinct, but certainly knowing how the the uh, frame design and the geometry thereof plays a role in how a bike maneuvers is is a definitely a helpful skill yeah that's that's really true but even people that have been riding a long time will find themselves in a situation where they say they go into a switchback on a downhill descent and i guess descents always are downhill (laughs) (laughs) so they go into a switchback on a descent and they think they've got the angle set up right and they're you know starting from the opposite side and cutting in toward the toward the apex and swinging out to the outside and any number of things could happen a car could be coming and they suddenly have to make a correction or gravel or, or gravel that they see on the opposite squirrel end. runs in front of you yeah or it's an unfamiliar turn and and, and it turns out that it tightens up more and they'll be going in and they'll suddenly realize oh my gosh my trajectory is taking me off the edge of the road on the other end so their reaction reaction will be to put the brakes on and slow down which stands the bike up more which continues them on this trajectory what they really need to do is to be able to suddenly lean the bike deeper into the turn and if they don't understand how the bike works then they won't necessarily do that correction where they push with their inside arm, pull in with their outside arm and force the bike into a lean and tighten up the, tighten up the, the radius of curvature. And so even though they're like, God, I'm slowing down, I'm slowing down, I'm going so slow, yet they're still, you know, creeping along the edge of the guardrail, you know, mm-hmm. even though they're going ridiculously slow and they're like, this shouldn't be. I mean, what's going on? You know? <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's the reason that all the bike's natural, natural self-writing abilities are going to keep doing that. Are going to keep making it take a straighter line and mm-hmm. keep straightening it up more. And unless you understand that and you counteract it intentionally, uh, you'll have that problem. This, this is one of the first rules of, of cornering, um, especially on the descent, is if you're going to slow down, do all your slowing before you hit the turn. Yeah. And then you should not be touching your brakes in that turn. And if you take the wrong line, if you have too much speed it's your last step should be to hit the brakes. You should first be, as you said, really trying to force that counter steer. That's right. But sometimes you do have to hit the brakes in the turn 
and, and you still don't want to go off the road. And so then your only way to, to end up getting through the turn is as you're braking to counter steer. You know, an, an example might also be when I was when I was on national cycling team, there was a um, there was a book that was very, very famous about kind of everything about what you'd want to know to be a bike racer. And, and I know it was done by the Schwinn Wolverine Club, somebody in the Schwinn Wolverine Club, which was a very, very strong club in the 70s in Michigan and um, produced a lot of great riders, Tom mm-hmm. Schuler among them, and Jeff Pierce, I think, too. And, but one of the things it said when it was talking about how to handle a bike, it was, it, and, it, and it literally, in that chapter, he discussed how, you know, I used to think, something whatever i thought the guy said about how a bike handle until i went and watched a belgian kermesse you know mm-hmm. and these guys were doing these amazing things and it was you know terrible conditions and slippery road and miserable weather and and what they were doing was when they'd come into a turn they'd they'd shift their weight way to the inside off the inside of the saddle and then they'd and then they'd reach to the outside and they'd really steer where they're where they're they're pulling the inside arm in and they're pushing the outside arm out, which we just discussed counter steering. That's exactly the opposite of what you do counter steering, where you get your butt on the saddle, mm-hmm. firmly weighted on the saddle, you push your inside arm forward, you pull your outside arm in. Well, the point is what those guys were doing is they're riding on a slippery, wet surface. And when you're on a slippery, wet surface, you want to have the bike as upright as right. you can be, yet you still got to get around the turn. Right. Well, the way to get around a turn by keeping the bike upright is to actually enhance the bike's the bike's natural stability, which what the bike wants to do is, is turn deeply into the corner, turn sharply into the corner, and stand the bike back up. And so that's what those guys were doing. You'll see, that, see for, that in cyclocross sometimes, I think. Yes, as, exactly. Know, as well. Yeah. It's, and so, so a, a good, a skilled rider will naturally make that correction on a slippery turn. He'll do that. And then on a dry turn, he'll be counter steering and, and won't even necessarily think about it. But that's, that's what will be happening. But to have a book that prescribed this is how you turn a bike when he, even in the description, he talked about how it was in terrible weather conditions right. that he was watching. Changes this, but, everything. But yeah. But somehow he then extrapolated that to this is what you do this is how you handle the bike like a belgian you know you and and it was terrible advice and people <laughs> following that advice if they continued to follow that advice they would have gravitated toward a certain different kind of bike a different bike geometry because that that advice is terrible advice for <laughs> for riding on a dry dry surface and right. so you'd want a bike you'd want to have a bike that was that was made that less of a problem that mm. you were that you were turning it that way mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so the second part of my question was and it's perhaps complex but how does somebody use this knowledge that they're going to gain in this episode to make better purchasing decisions so that they don't get uh, not dupe is duped is a is a strong word but there are marketing claims out there about bikes and how they'll handle based on this and that and how does this knowledge help them from uh, falling into any traps? Well, it can help them a lot. One thing I think it's important to understand what your purposes for the bike are, what Mm -hmm. you're going to do with the bike. So I've been building bikes for 37 years. And and over that time, I've had customers who went from being pretty fit, strong, performance-minded riders to being much slower 
a guy in in their 40s is now in his 70s. Right. And some of these things that I've been talking about, wheel flop and fork trail, you want different things out of the bike depending on that. So we talked about how a lot of wheel flop is what you get with a very stable bike. And you would think that as you get older and older and you ride slower and slower, you want a more stable bike, right? It's actually quite the opposite because you're riding quite a bit slower and that means that as you lean back and forth while you're, say, you're weaving your way up a climb or you're, while you're weaving your way up a climb or you're going, you're going slowly out of the saddle, the front wheel is going to snake around more mm. the more wheel flop it has. And it's going to be uncomfortable. That won't happen at higher speed. You know, you don't get somebody racing Paris-Roubaix at breakneck speed over all these bumps worrying too much about wheel flop because mm-hmm. they're just... they're overriding it with their speed but at a slow speed yeah it's an issue you actually want a less stable bike and and the way you would achieve that would be reducing the fork trail that also can explain touring bike for an old guy how it has a lot of fork rake and we've just been discussing if you left everything else the same and you increase the fork rake that decreases the bike stability because it decreases the fork trail well it also decreases the wheel flop. And it can also be a benefit for the, um, for the tourist because not only are they riding slower, they also have weight on mm-hmm. the bike. And right. when they lean the bike over, if the wheel flops less out of the lean, then they're going to have less trouble even just leaning it up against a railing when they stop for lunch or whatever. Right, right. And, and so this understanding can definitely help when you're making a purchase. And if you, and if you have some experience, if you can go back with... You know, now all of the geometry of every bike that you could buy is online. You can look it up and, and certainly they'll give you the, you'll know the fork, I mean, excuse me, you'll know the wheel diameter. Right. And, and you'll know, and it'll tell you the fork offset or the fork rake and it'll tell you the head angle. But a lot of times it'll also just tell you trail and mm-hmm. just say right on there. And even some will even tell you wheel flop. And, and wheel flop is measured in, in, it's a distance measurement. It's how much the wheel drops when, mm-hmm. when you lean it. So if you've had other bikes that you like, that you know how you like that, that handling, then you can look for that. You right. look for that kind of trail. It's like its own language in a way. You look at yeah. a geometry chart and you can say, okay. And there's, obviously, you get the frame size that you're looking for within, and then those several key points and you think oh i know how that bike is going to handle to a pretty certain degree but it's takes a little while to get to a point where you can read that as its own language i think which brings up an interesting point in my mind which is throughout the bicycle's history we've seen trends in geometry where things are steeper or shallower things are tighter or shorter, all these types of things. I'm curious, you've been building bikes for 37 years. Why does that happen? A lot of times it's driven by performance reasons. And a lot of times it's driven by fashion. So the ones that tend to stick around are ones that are driven by performance reasons. And the ones that don't are the ones that are that are fashionable. And so one thing that I'm aware that Road bike manufacturers, now that all their geometry is online and everybody can look at it, and the guy says, well, geez, 
I'm going to ride a 56 centimeter bike, but look at the wheelbase on this one is a lot shorter than the wheelbase on that one. And with the same length top tube. So I want the shorter wheelbase and they'll, they'll believe that for whatever reason, the shorter wheelbase, it's going to be quicker and tighter and it's going to turn faster and all this sort of stuff. Well, it may or may not, depending on what these other things we've t been talking about are like the head angle, the fork rate. If what you do to reel it in is to make the head angle much steeper, well, that's going to tend to make the bike a lot less stable. Or it, twitchy. It, twitchy. Or if you instead decided to, well, the way I'm going to reel it in is to make the fork rake a lot less. Well, that's going to have the opposite effect. It's going to make it a bunch more stable. It's going to be much harder to get it into the turn. Even though you got this short wheelbase and you think it's going to be really quick turning, it ain't going to be quick turning if you did right, that. Right. So I'm not sure that fully answered the question. So that, so that would be an example of something where fashion is, it's like everybody's like on a, happens to be on a kick at the time. I want a short wheelbase. And so right. they're all looking for bikes with short wheelbase. They're bases. trying to differentiate themselves in some way, perhaps. Yes. Or, or the consumer believes, you know, somehow that that's what some, famous coach has, has <laughs> said, you know, oh, you want a really short wheelbase. And so now everybody's looking for that. And then, and then over time that would tend to just cease to be part of the conversation because those bikes sucked and people would, <laughs> would end up finding, you know, and relax toward a geometry that, that worked better. So I have a question for you because you've given me a couple aha moments here. Back in 2007, I was on this bike that I loved and I just whenever I descended on it, I felt like it just snapped through the corners. I mean, I'd look at a corner and I'd suddenly be through it. The following year, I was on a bike that I didn't love. It felt more stable. I always described it as a tank. It was great going in a straight line. But when I was descending, I had to wrestle it through the corners. And so my, my aha moment here is I'm guessing that 2008 bike had a really big fork trail versus the bike in, in 2007. So I guess my question is, what? why would you want a bike like that? Well, one would be a time trial. Flat out time trial. You want to be able to just go sleep on the bars and just pound the pedals. And especially when you're in an aero bar position where you got all this weight on the front end, you don't want to have a twitchy front end at all. You want to have a super, super stable bike. But it requires, there is cornering in a time trial. And particularly, you know, if you think of, of what, a lot of people's district time trials like it's straight out and then it's got a U-turn at the end and then you go back and a tight U-turn. Well, you don't want to take forever going around that U-turn. Well, if you have a super, super stable bike and you get to that turn and you try and do your normal turning stuff, you're going to have to slow really, really far down. And But if you understand this counter steering we were talking about, because of overcoming this natural stability of bike, you can actually whip that bike around super, super fast if you're just really pushing forward hard with your inside arm, pulling in with your outside arm, and, you, and you've obviously practiced it some and gotten used to it. You can whip it around and then you just go to sleep again on the bars and pound as hard as you want. And, and if you're not expending any effort and energy keeping the bike going straight, then um, you're gonna go faster. That's fair. Or the third option with the cornering, I remember uh, 2010 Nationals watching Swain Tuff come down this steep descent to a 90-degree turn and didn't come out of his air bars, just went into that turn, went into somebody's front yard, <laughs> rode right through their front yard, through the hedges, 
back out into the road and never came out of the aero bars. That's one way to do it, yeah. I mean, every bike is a compromise, right? You're, yes. You know, it's a balance between maneuverability and instability or stability and instability. And so that's what all of these things that we're talking about are, is the nuance and change. And when you're talking about head tube angles between a tarmac and an Amonda, could be a half a degree. Or, you know, we're talking about very small differences on paper that add up to sometimes big changes in characteristics, sometimes almost indiscernible changes in characteristics. Yep. Especially if you if you then add in something about the wheel and tire. Mm-hmm. Because you also have probably had the, if you're a cyclocross rider, for instance. So yes. cyclocross riders tend to mess around with tire pressure a lot, but they don't mess around with tire diameter at all, because 33 millimeters is what allowed, it's 700 by 33 seat tire is what's allowed. Width. You yeah, said so, diameter, sorry, width. Right. Well, both. They're still using 700 C wheel, yeah. so the same diameter and the same tire width. So it ends up being the same wheel and tire is the same height, same diameter. And nobody's going to go to a skinnier tire. It just isn't happened. People, right. are, people use 700 by 33 C for mm-hmm. bike But... There are some courses where it's a huge advantage to have really, really low tire pressure. Right. For instance, if it's really muddy, you might want to be at as low as 14 PSI or something. Well, if you then are riding that bike, you're used to your bike riding a certain way, and you're on pavement and you do a sharp turn, it's really like turning a truck because mm-hmm. because you have you're now trying to counteract all this dry friction of the t- of this big contact patch on the road where you're used to a certain much smaller contact right. patch and the bike rails through the turn and now it's like what the heck you know so there is like if you were comparing like you said an Amonda and a tarmac or whatever but if you were if you were nowadays we have all these gravel disc road bikes and gravel disc road bike you generally have a lot of ability to change the diameter of the tire mm-hmm. width of the tire and and it does change the diameter of the wheel so then you've you've now by having a, a bigger wheel diameter you've increased the fork trail you've made the bike more stable just putting a taller taller tire and wheel in there but then you've also increased the stability by running a bunch softer pressure because mm-hmm. you're going to ride it on gravel but then when you get on pavement like it's not going to handle like the tarmac mm-hmm. and it's because of choices you made, but it very well might if you put, you know, a 23 millimeter tire, pump it up hard, put it in there. You might discover, hey, whoa, this does handle as quick as my tarmac. Mm-hmm. So you've talked about your senior project at uh, Colorado College and the trying to build the unrideable bike. What else has informed you over the years about how to build excellent bikes? Well, there was a eureka moment for me in 1981, Memorial Day weekend, 1981. Back in the 70s and early 80s, one of the one certainly one of the biggest single day road races in the country was Durango Iron Horse. Mm-hmm. It was it's a it's a race that you race from Durango to Silverton over two big passes, about 12,000 foot passes, and you. Um, you race the narrow gauge train. That's how it started because there were two brothers, one who was a bike rider, one was a conductor on the train, on the narrow gauge train, and they had a bet over who would get to Silverton faster. And so, and for a while, it was always a consistent, it started in the same place and it ended in the same place. So there was actually a time 
that was associated with it. So there was a record time. Right. And uh, in 1975, George Mount, who was a very famous American cyclist, set set the record of two hours, 15 minutes, 55 seconds. And, and people <laughs> thought, oh, my God, nobody's ever going to beat George Mount. I like that and, you remember that number. Yeah. And then, and then in 1980, I won that race. And I did two ten forty eight by more than by more than wow. five minutes e bike and <laughs> and I uh, and now you know now it's it's slightly different course length and whatever but people go much faster but in any case I um, you know I grew up as an alpine ski racer and was and started racing bikes because I was on the alpine ski team in college and I had all these knee injuries and the way I dealt with the knee injuries was and to avoid surgery was riding a bike. And so I tended to go downhill very fast. And that's how I dropped my one breakaway companion was I dropped him on both of the descents and let him catch up after the first one, but then mm -hmm. didn't after the second one. And I had a bike at the time. It was a Mazi made in California by Mario Confente, who was one of the original protégés of Faliero Mazi. And he came over to the U.S. and he was given the rights to use that name. And it was just a fantastic bike, and I could go really fast on it. But I'm a tall guy, six and a half feet tall. And then after that season, I got put on national cycling team. I now had sponsors and got sponsored bikes. And mm. next time, 1981 comes around, and I'm now the defending champion doing this race. And get over the top of the first climb with the group, start going down, and my bike just starts shaking uncontrollably on the, as I got up to high speed. And there was... I had no idea what was happening, and the only thing that I knew that I could do was put the brakes on, let everybody go, and go slowly down the descent, and then it happened even worse on the descent into Silverton. You're, you're not going to tell us what brand this is, are you? No. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so it was another Italian bike, made in Italy, though. But I, at that moment, I was weeks away from finishing my my degree in physics, and I'd already done this my senior seminar on the stability of bicycle. I was like, this is ridiculous. I could do better than this myself. I'm going to, that was the moment where I decided I'm going to build these damn things myself. And it turns out that that's a totally different issue than what we've been talking about. This high speed shimmy of a bike. And, so and I thought, to ask, what is that? Yeah. I thought I could solve it with these same things that we're talking about, make the bike more stable. Well, that's not it. It has to do with Frequencies. Yeah, frequencies, but specifically it's called a hop bifurcation. Ah, yes. But we won't go into the details of that, but one way well, to kind much of... much clearer now. Thank you. One way to think about this is a, is a, um, is a resonant frequency of, a, of, of something where, you know, you, if you put in the input, the frequency input at the resonant frequency, then the, the, free, the oscillation will build and build and build. The amplitude will grow. If you apply a different frequency, it's not going to excite this, this resonant frequency. And that it just so happened that, you know, the taller the bike, the further the tubes get apart. And at the time, all the bikes were lugged, so the tube diameters were always the same. Those were fixed, and pretty much the angles were pretty much always the same on all bikes, too, because those were also fixed by the, by the lugs. And so when you get a really tall bike with the same skinny tubes as, you know, somebody riding a 52 centimeter bike, there's going to be a lot more back and forth twist to that thing. Mm. So, so that the amount of time that it takes the bike to go back and forth through one complete 
twisting back and forth oscillation is much greater than on a much tighter. So you're saying like the front end and the back end of the bike are oscillating back and forth. Exactly. And so, and the, the, this resonant frequency of oscillation is now so much slower that it tends to be, it can easily be set up by the kind of frequencies that you encounter on the road, the bumps on the road, the wind, things like that. Cause because often people will find they have a bike that they never knew shimmied on them, and then they come down a big hill in a wind, in a high wind, right. and then all of a sudden it's shimmying like crazy. Well, that's just the extra little, little bit of frequency added that was required to to get it into that resonant zone. So that took me a lot of time to figure that out and how to make a bike stiffer, and also also the heavier the rider, the longer that bike takes mm-hmm. to go back and forth through that so you can have a bike that for me at 175 pounds would be great and i'm like this bike's got this handle i can ride at 50 miles an hour downhill no hands well a 350 pound guy somebody double my weight now that resonant frequency has dropped a bunch and now that same bike will shimmy like mad on him mm-hmm. so so um those were the things that took me a lot while to figure out that are completely different they're related to these things that we've talked about but it, but it has much more to do with the torsional stiffness of the bike. So what are bike manufacturers doing now to prevent that shimmy? Well, one thing they do is they don't make bikes for really tall people. Enough. <laughs> that's why I have that's why I have this niche of That's why you have a bikes. business that's still. That's why I have a business because I don't try and go up against Trek and Specialize and everybody. And and yes, it is the case that um, carbon bikes the investment in the molds are so high that that you have to amortize those over a lot of units in order to make it worthwhile. And if you look at the bell curve of people's sizes and you go, well, geez, there's nobody living out there in that little low part of the bell curve. We're not going to sell enough bikes to make this worth it. And so, you know, they'll stop at 60 or 62 centimeter or something. And then the guy that's riding a 70 centimeter bike, you know, he has to come to somebody like me. And fortunately, I have this business because if you, a lot of times people would go to a short frame builder, he'd make them a 70 centimeter bike and it would shimmy right? because <laughs> he didn't understand the problem. So, but in general, one of the benefits of, of carbon fiber design is that, is that each bike size can actually have its unique shape. So instead of the old days where the tube diameters were fixed and the angles are fixed, now you could, you can make the tube sizes grow and make the whole area around the head tube get much bigger on the bigger bike than on the smaller bike. And I guess that explains going back to, um, why there might be, um, distinct, uh, types of geometry for different eras. Some of that was constrained by manufacturing and the uh, availability of certain things. Yeah. A lugged bike from the seventies is pretty set in its ways. Now we've got a lot more options because it's easier to, to do what you just explained and give people more choices based on the, the manufacturing abilities. And this could very well have to do with why mountain bikes didn't exist before they did. Because Joe Breeze and Tom Ritchie, who Joe Breeze built the first five breezers or four, I don't know, ten breezers or whatever it was. <laughs> that was sort of the first purpose-built mountain bike. And... And if you looked at it, it had these these direct lateral tubes that went all the way from the rear dropout all the way to the head mm-hmm, tube, mm-hmm. like a tandem. Well, on a tandem, those guys, Tom Ritchie and Joe Breeze, both did build some tandems. And tandems require clearly much 
bigger tubes and these longer lengths and the angles are different and you got these lateral tubes going the whole length to stiffen it up. Well, in order to do that, you're going to have to come up with a different method of putting them together than lugs. And so that's when they came up with this fillet brazing. Mm-hmm. And then they could, then they were no longer constrained by the size of the tube, the shape of the tube or the angle. And so that allowed them to make these bikes and the first Richies. I mean, now, you know, mountain bikes, hardtail mountain bike has a lot closer geometry to a road bike now that those those sure. those had really shallow seat angles and really shallow head angles and and part of it was because they were they were sort of following the designs of these old clunker bikes that they were riding down right. Mont, Mont Tam which had that that kind of geometry and so there were bikes that they liked among those and they tended to kind of they mimicked it mimic yeah. mimic it but they never would have been able to come up with that had they been stayed constrained with lugs. The mm-hmm. fact that they that they got away from that, and then of course TIG welding was a cheaper version, a cheaper, lighter version of fillet brazing allows you to do any angle, any mm-hmm. any tube shape. One of the other questions I had for you is, uh, you know, I love to talk to people that have been riding bikes for a really long time, and they always have like the oh man that. Uh, De Rosa from 1973 that I wrote. Oh my God, I've never ridden something so nice in my life. You know, I want to know. Well, th- it sounds like you had one that Mossy that you uh, bombed those descents at Iron Horse. I know you probably haven't ridden many other people's bikes besides your own over the last 37 years because you've had the ability to make whatever you wanted. But I'm I just for a little color. I'm curious if there are any bikes where you just were in love with how they handled and what made them handle so well in your mind. And maybe it was one, a, a bike that you've made. And oh, oh yeah. I mean, definitely it was bikes I made, but that, but that Mozzie, I mean, in terms of when I was buying bikes that I wasn't making, there was nothing that rode like that, like that. Mazzi. And what made it so special? Do you know the, the specifics of that? Yeah. Um, at the time, the um, bike manufacturers, when they made a really tall bike, they made it the same. It had the same fork, just a longer steering tube on mm. it, but the same fork as all the rest of the size run. And they just reeled in the wheelbase by making the head angle much steeper. So like the one that shimmied on me so badly going down to Durango, that one had a 76 and a half degree head angle, which, you know, anybody that knows much about that stuff is like, boy, that's a steep head angle. <laughs> yeah. Especially if it has exactly the same fork rake as all the rest of the bikes in the line, which are running more like, you know, 73, 70, right. 74 head angles. But this Confente Mazi that I had, you know, it had a much more reasonable head angle, a 74 degree head angle. And it also had decreased the fork rake a little bit from, from what, you know, the rest of the size run we mm-hmm. had. And, it was just a really sweet feeling bike and and it, and it had heavier gauge tubing so it didn't shimmy also because it 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 had Reynolds 531 tubing which you never find an Italian brand bike with Reynolds tubing mm-hmm. but it had Reynolds 531 that was slightly thicker than the Columbus SL of the bike that following year that shook so badly mm-hmm. this might be getting into the weeds but Bikes have been around for hundreds of years. How did they arrive at some of these places? Just through trial and error, experimenting with head angles and it, and the other elements, and figuring out what made it ride. Is that or yes, yeah, that's exactly right. 
I mean, and when you think about penny farthings, all the original bikes, there was no fork offset and there was no, the head angles were 90 degrees. Right. You don't have to be a rocket scientist nowadays to realize that would have been a harsh riding bike. Mm-hmm. And then also penny farthings, you have this other problem of if, if, if you hit something that stopped the front wheel, you were just going to go launch launch from straight <laughs> from a very high height, you know, right on your head with no helmet on. Mm-hmm. And so certainly lost some riders and in the process figured out more, you know, and the, the first, the first improvement was the quote safety bicycle, right. which was meant to prevent people from falling on their head from really high height. And then once that change had been made, where you, where you disconnected the pedaling from the front wheel, then you could now, now it gave you the flexibility to start changing these geometry items that we've been discussing. And then, then, yeah, then it was hundreds of years or a hundred years of trial and error that, that ended up sorting it out. But certainly the early bikes, people had no idea and they'd just try something, throw it against the wall and see if it stuck. And mm-hmm. Is there anywhere to go from here? Will we continue to tweak with geometry or is there, we're, we're pretty constrained within the, the, what makes a good riding bike at this point? Well, it's very hard to see the future and to know what's going to be happening in tire size and mm. tire performance. That will always affect geometry. And also, for instance, as we get into e-bikes and the bikes get heavier and they get faster and that will also inform geometry. I don't see if things were to stay the same, tires are similar to what they are now. Riders are going similar speeds and way similar amounts. And I think we've dialed it in pretty well for really nice handling and, and that it'll, it'll take other things changing before those, those mm-hmm. parameters are going to change. I think. Mm-hmm. Here's one last question, I guess, from, from a, from a, from your point of view specifically as a, owner of a bike company how do you make all the decisions how do you go through the the decision making process when it comes to choosing the right angles and things like that well i first of all take the measurements of the rider Mm -hmm. and i also talk with them about what they're going to use it for and if i have really my druthers I would actually send them out on, if, if they happen to be close to my size, for instance, like recently, last few weeks, I sent out a rider who bought, was buying a bike for me on one of my bikes. And I put a different stem on there, moved the seat position around so that he was going to be set up like he would be on the new bike and then let him ride it for a couple of weeks and got his feedback on what he liked about it and what he didn't. And then I can make a really informed decision. And also, if somebody has specific, specific, particularly medical issues, but you know, pain here and there and whatever, then um, we have this cooperative arrangement with University of Colorado Sports Medicine Performance Center, where it grew out of the work we used to do for years with Andy Pruitt at the Boulder Center for Sports Medicine, where where the rider goes in and I go in with them and. I already have a design that I've sent to them and they set up over at CUSMPC, they set up the fit bike with that geometry and then the guy can come in and he can ride it and, and, um, we can make changes while they're even pedaling. Mm -hmm. We can raise the seat, push it forward, back, raise the bar, push it forward, back all while they're without even getting off or without even stopping pedaling. 
and look at saddle pressure distribution on the saddle. We can look at the actual movement of their joints by with optical capture of the of their uh, the tracings of the of what their how their joints are moving in space, and that's kind of the the gold standard. We actually call it our gold medal fit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is, is where the more information I have, the the better job I can do in in building the bike for the guy. But but it also really helps for him to tell me or the woman what they like and don't like about their current bike or their bikes they've had recently, and and then from that I learn a lot too i can uh, okay if they didn't like that then i know how to make this change i want to talk about the process somebody should go through as a consumer to understand what they might look for sort of guidelines to find the bike that's right for the application they want to ride are there any guidelines that you give to people about look for a head angle that's between this and this and i'm sure it also gets complex because of all the interplay between these things, but what are your guidelines for that process? Well, first of all, it's going to completely depend on the application. Mm-hmm. For instance, if somebody's going to be doing gravity-assisted mountain biking, you know, <laughs> sure. hauling their bike up on the chairlift and ripping down mountain bike trails, it's completely different geometry from regular road riding, which is also subtly, more subtly different, but importantly different from if they're riding criteriums mm-hmm. or if they're riding a track bike on, uh, and on a, on a track, a bank track. And I also would say that, you know, assuming somebody's buying a stock bike, big brands, they make great handling bikes for the application. So it's important to understand the application. So it, it doesn't make sense if you're an 85-year-old guy pedaling at 12 miles an hour to buy the bike that Peter Sagan gets. Right. You're looking for different performance characteristics. And that's, well, that's making a big assumption. I mean, that guy might be pretty strong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. <laughs> Could be. So, so um, what I would say, first of all, is if you're an experienced rider and you know exactly what you're, what you're going to be using the bike for and you have existing bikes that you've tried in that application – and there are some that you like and some that you don't, then you particularly look at mainly fork trail, but also the head angle, fork rake, how they got to that fork trail with the given wheel size. And, and you mimic that in the, in the new bike you're going to get. Just because a bike works great for somebody who rides it completely differently from you doesn't mean it's going to work for you. And, and if you're not an experienced rider, then you, then you go with somebody you trust who ride similarly to what you ride or what you're planning on riding. So, you know, if it's your first time that you're going to be riding a, you know, say a downhill bike, you want to get a downhill bike for taken to Whistler or something, and you Mm -hmm. don't know, you've never ridden down and you don't know anything about it. Well, you don't necessarily want to then see what greatest downhillers are looking at, but you'd want to find somebody who's got some experience at it, but maybe isn't that good at it. Mm -hmm. And, and has bikes that they, that they like and they're going to be, but they're going to be tend to be more riding the speed that you're going to be riding rather than the speed that Greg Minar rides or something. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have the personal experience in what you're looking for, then you seek out somebody who, who, who does and is, is, uh, riding it a similar way to what you're going to ride your bike. It, unfortunately, it's not formulaic. You can't say, 
you're this type of rider. You want a bike that has 73.5 degree head tube angle, a rake of this. You have to do some homework to understand what you need given the application, given the skill level you have. And And also given your size. Right. That it's not going to be the same recommendation for the same people riding the same sort of circumstances, but one of them's five foot two and one of them's six foot two. Mm -hmm. Has there been any bike manufacturers realizing these particular geometries people seem to like more and these tend to sell better? Uh, Do they have any sort of awareness of that? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. They definitely are getting feedback from the field and, and it tends to hone their designs into be good, work for work for most people who are want that application that, you know, we talked about tarmac, you know. I don't think you'll find too many people who race bikes and they buy a tarmac to think, oh, this thing, I don't like the handling of this. You know, they've got that pretty well dialed in, you know. They've been they've been working with a lot of racing teams and a lot of individual riders and they take the feedback and and for that application, if you're going to be going fast on that bike on the road, it's probably going to work pretty well. Mm-hmm. So it's a good old bell-shaped curve that it's there. They come up with the geometries that work for the majority of people, and for those people on the size of the bell-shaped curve, that's why your business does well. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. that makes sense. Well, we started this conversation, and Trevor said, "You know, I'm a retro grouch." Basically, what he was implying is that it doesn't matter what bike you buy; it has two wheels put some pedals on it, you can do whatever you want with it, which is, you know, that's true, basically. But a lot of these things make a big difference. Trevor, are you convinced that these things make a big difference? (laughs) I'm going to upgrade my response. How about that? Okay, sure. So very quick background. When I was living in Ithaca, New York, they they did an experiment where they took uh, frames of, of different materials and painted them in a way that you couldn't tell which was which. And then I had a whole bunch of experienced cyclists ride them and, and tried to get them to say, you know, which bike is which bike. Only one of the some hundred people in this experiment actually got all three bikes right. And uh, I know him and I asked him about it. He's like, I was guessing. <laughs> Guessed right. <laughs> um, and what they got out of that experiment was the thing that people noticed was the fork and the wheels. So that's always been my my basis. But yeah, I'm going to upgrade it to... Uh, this, you know, as I was telling you, that 2007, 2008 experience I had, the bikes felt different. It wasn't the frame material. They were the same material. Uh, It was the geometry. And it does, you know, I didn't know half of these terms. I'll admit that fully coming into here. This all makes a lot of sense. And it really, you know, this, the geometry of the frame seems to have, will have a huge experience, uh, effect on your experience with the bike. And it could be that the bike in 2007 was great. You felt it when it was at its greatest on the descents. It doesn't make the 2008 bike necessarily bad, but maybe it was no. the, the application again on the sense it wasn't. So maybe it was it would be better for something else. You well, know? That's what I was asking. I'm, I'm, my guess was I was just being me and being an idiot and getting a bike without knowing what I should have known and bought the wrong bike for what I was trying to use it for. Um, And I'm sure that bike had great applications in in other places. That's why I was asking the question, where would you use that bike? Obviously, it was uh, not the bike for what I was doing. So, no, I, I, yeah, to answer your question, Chris, I am a retrograuch, mostly out of ignorance and stubbornness, Mm -hmm. not because I am in any way right. Okay. (laughs) Very good. So the one serious side of my retrograuchness is what I don't like is when people 
read something about, oh, this bike's got a tighter wheelbase or a steeper head angle. And they go, that sounds cool. So I need to get that bike. I, I don't think that's the, the way to make purchases. And there was a lot of really good information shared here. And I, I think when you take the sort of knowledge that Leonard shared and start asking the questions, do I want a steeper head angle? Do I want more or less fork trail? And then make your decisions based off of what do I want? What do I need? What sort of application am I using it for? Then I think you're making great choices and all this stuff does matter. It comes back to science, Trevor. It's all about science. There you go. Science wins. Yay, science. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at velanews.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. I can't stress it enough. Rating us positively and commenting on us positively on iTunes helps other people find Fast Talk just the way the search functionality works on that site. So if you like Fast Talk and you think others will benefit from it, take a moment to go on there and give us some positive feedback. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk is a joint production between velonews and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Leonard Zinn, Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.